Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Welcome everybody to tonight's event. Um, it's a forward-thinking event in partnership with the State Library of New South Wales. I'd like to open tonight's event by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, and uh, pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I'm Megan French, the Marketing Manager at the Grattan Institute and the uh, host and producer of our podcast. Um, tonight, we are here to discuss the graduate premium and ask the question, is it still worth going to university? More young Australians are choosing higher education than ever before, and our recent report, Mapping Australian Higher Education 2018, found that two in five young Australians now attend higher education. In 1990, only one in five did. As higher education participation grows, the benefits of going to university are becoming less certain. Graduates are increasingly finding it difficult to get jobs that require their qualification. More and more graduates are working in jobs that only require a year 12 certificate. So tonight, our panel will discuss um, if higher education is still a good option for young people and which courses are the best insurance against poor employment outcomes. So I'd like to introduce our panel for this evening. To my left is Professor Danelli Mather, the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Graduate Employment at Deakin University. She's responsible for Deakin's Graduate Employment Strategy and is the head of the Graduate Employment Division, which runs Deakin Talent Opportunities. Next to Danelli is Professor Phil Lewis, Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Canberra and Visiting Professorial Fellow at the University of New South Wales, as well as Director of the Centre of Labour Market Research. And in his spare time, he edits the Australian Journal of Labour Economics. <laughs> Finally tonight, I'm joined on stage by my colleague, Higher Education Fellow Itama Chirastadam. Itama is the author and co-author of numerous articles and reports on higher education issues, including the report which has prompted tonight's discussion. So please join me in welcoming tonight's panel. Just to give you a little overview of how tonight will run, we're going to have a bit of a discussion up here for about 40, 45 minutes, and then we will throw open to you, the audience, uh, for some questions as well. We have a mic because we are recording tonight's event and we'll release it as a podcast. Um, also, if you'd like to follow the conversation on Twitter, please feel free to do so by including the handles at Grattan Inst or at SLNSW with the hashtag forward thinking. All right. Let's get this discussion going. So, Itama, I'm going to start with you. Um, we've been hearing a lot, and I've spoken tonight, about how more and more young students are going to university. I is it true? Yes. And if so, what's the cause? Um, that's only true, Megan. Uh, so, that started in 2008 uh, when um, essentially the, the start of the demand-driven system. So, since then, there's about 40, 40 more – sorry – since then, enrolments grew by about 40%, um, and at the same time, population grew by only about 15%. Now, if you focus on younger younger people, so 18 to 24, where you know they're most likely to go university, that growth was even lower. The, so that resulted in essentially participation growth during that period. So in 2008, only about 30% of 19-year-olds go to university. So now it's about 41%. So that growth has been, you know, 
real over time. The source of that growth was actually the introduction of the demand system, as I said. The talk what, us through what, exactly what yeah, that is. So yeah. what is what it means is that universities were essentially allowed to admit as many students as they as they want to, is like as they can fill. Um, and that means that you they can also get the funding for those new places as well. Um, historically, there are many more students wanting to go to university than there were funded places, so they didn't have difficulties in actually filling those places. And that's why you see strong growth and, you know, in many universities like Deakin as well. So another question for you, Itamar, with so many more students, do students still get a premium from going to university? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, <laughs> they still do get a premium from going to university. And when I say premium, I mean essentially the difference between earnings of graduates versus earnings of school leavers. Now, if you look at the difference between earnings of graduates versus earnings of vocational education holders, the difference would be smaller, but still there. So what we found is that the for the average early career male graduates, essentially their um, their premium was about was about fourteen thousand um, dollars. For women, it's about about fourteen and fourteen and a half. So a little bit more for early career. Um, that obviously changed over time. The Unfortunate thing is that over time between 2006 and 2016, that premium fell um, for both men and women by about $1,000. So so before we jump into um, why the deterioration has occurred, Nelly, you worked with many students and graduates. What type of jobs do graduates get? Is there such a thing as a typical job? Absolutely not. There's there's no such thing as typical in the workplace, whether it's a job um, in terms of how long you work or what you do or what employment means. There are people who become an employee and they're employed because of that. There are people who create their own work. So you could be freelancing, you could be doing contracting or working as a consultant, you could set up a small business, or you could even persuade someone to give you money to start up your own business. So there's no such thing as typical in terms of what it means to be employed or how long you work, where you work, in the 21st century, there's no such thing. Mm. It's also the case that there's no such thing as a typical job out of most study areas. So if you study medicine, nursing, teaching, engineering, the chances are there is a typical job. But if you study law, across the globe, a majority of law graduates will never practice as a lawyer. If you study psychology, the chances of you being a practicing psychologist is very small. That's not to say that the law skills or the psychology skills are not sought after. They are very highly sought after. But those rules are different. So, for example, with psychology, um, the Australian Bureau of Statistics is one of the biggest employers of psychology graduates because when you study psychology, you do a lot of statistics, you do a lot of sample survey design, you understand how people think. So. But the average psychology graduate has come to study psychology because some university went to promote the courses to them and they presented a clinical psychologist who's, or they've looked at one of the TV programs and they see a you know, forensic psychologist and they think that's what a, a degree will take us. So there's no such thing as typical, but it doesn't mean that one job is less than another, that you have to settle. It's, it's about the mindset. It's about 
what an education gets you now is different. There's more opportunities. Mm. I'm going to come back to some of that a little bit later on, but I, I'm just going to go back to exploring the deterioration in, in the premium a little bit more, Idema. Um, to what extent is it because of economic downturns, the global financial crisis, the end of the mining boom? How much of these things impacted on this deterioration? Yeah, so we think it's a big part of it. Uh, so what we found is that between 2006 and 2016, there's about two years when there were essentially no new professional jobs being created. And these are the jobs that generally graduates would get. And during those two years, there's about 200,000 new graduates going to the system. And with many, many more graduates, many people looking for a job with, with fewer jobs essentially available to them, it meant that many of them would actually had to take jobs like sales and services that many of them would otherwise get um, without qualification, which reduces that premium. And Phil, I'm going to throw to you here. Given that deterioration in the graduate premiums is largely caused by economic downturns, uh, can we expect the premium to increase again? Uh, is, it, is this a new normal for graduates? Well, in a way, the, uh, the the benchmark for all these estimates has always been 2006. Right. And I'm, I took taking a very good look at this. And basically 2006 was a very non-typical year. Okay. It was one where we had um, uh, the labour market generally was very good. So the opportunity cost of going to university was high. We had... Um, immense structural change we've had for several decades before that, which was changing the nature towards service-based jobs, which were ideal for university graduates. We had a boom, an economic boom, which had lasted for a large number of years. So on the demand side, we had fantastic conditions for creating jobs for graduates. On the supply side, we had limited supply. And, you know, economists always explain everything with demand and supply. If you increase the demand and don't increase the supply, then you actually get this increase in salaries and the what we call the increased rate of return. What's happened since then is we've more or less we're almost returning to a new normal in that the 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 market for graduates now is fairly steady. It hasn't really it hasn't increased to those enormous rates we had up to two thousand six. The boom's over. The economy is moving at a fairly healthy rate, but very very moderate. And but simultaneously, the problem we had was, and I think it was politically driven, was that people said we've got the potential for because the economy's taken a downturn. We now have the potential for youth unemployment. Let's dress it up and say we've got making a target of making more of our workforce graduates. And if you increase the supply at a time when demand is falling off or remaining stagnant, it's fairly obvious what's going to happen. Now, the question is, the question is, <coughs> will people adjust to this new norm? And I think, I mean, when we say there's a downturn, sure, the rates of return, this is, you know, we, we actually calculate how, what, this premium is like over the whole of your lifetime. When we look at the rates of return, they've gone down, but they're still pretty good. They're a damn sight better than anything else you can get. You know, as I've said, my famous quote from me is, you know, if your grandmother's going to leave you some money, don't let her give you some chairs in Telstra or TNT. Get her to send you to university because the best rate of return you're ever going to get is from university education. I'm going to talk later, of course, that may not be the case for everybody. Sure. <laughs> so, Danelli, in your experience, is this, a, is this an Australian-specific phenomenon or are 
other economies experiencing this same sort of deterioration? Look, I, I wouldn't call it a deterioration. I think it's a disruption. Sure. You know, it, it's moving it from what people expected and what was traditionally what the outcome. Um, it is very much uh, in the world where technology is disrupting everything. So it's not necessarily developed world, but technology-enabled world. So if you have a look at, um, say, China, you know, the, the person who's selling in the market is doing their business on WeChat. You know, um, in India, people set up businesses. Everyone's got a mobile. So it's it's more around technology and globalization disrupting the way we work and collaborate. That's changed job roles a lot. Uh, but also, the digital enablement has sort of taken out um, some of the things that that you did and replaced it with a system that you need to talk to or data you need to analyze. So it's changed jobs that were fairly routine also into jobs that require someone to understand how to use uh, digital um, equip or digital um, tools, um, but also to be able to make decisions based on data because data is more available. Um, so I think it's it's something that you see globally and the conversation certainly about what you study not defining your career path in a linear way is a conversation around the globe. Mm. But but in the developing world, there's the traditional study areas and um, occupations are still popular. Yeah. So we've had quite a bit of a discussion here about the deterioration or disruption in graduate premiums, um, but actual earnings are also important. Idema, you've looked at this in, in our latest uh, Grattan Institute higher education report. Uh, what did you find? Yeah, so what we found is that the deterioration for men, so from the premium, actually translated into earnings as well. Um, so for the average um, early career male graduate, uh, their earnings actually fell in real terms by about 3% between 2006 and 2016. Um, so from about $56,000 to about $54,000 on average. Um, and the main reason for that was because there's um, they're less likely to get a full-time job and they're also less likely to get a professional job and that actually reduced their earnings. For women, the story is a little bit more positive. Um, for an average um, early career female graduates, they, their earnings actually grew during that period by about 4%, so from about forty-four to $46,000 on average. Um, and when we looked into it, what we found is that the main source of that increase is um, because many more of them actually uh, participate in the labour market, and the main source of that is actually women who um, women with children. So I'll, I'll focus on the on the increase in in female labour force participation here. Phil, I'd like to ask you: is is this growth a phenomenon of only recent times? No, if you look at the um, the statistics, the uh, participation of women in the labour force has been going up uh, almost continuously now for several decades, oh. and it's largely because of well, there's several reasons, that I mean, but one of the major ones is the changing nature of the Australian economy. We're moving very much now towards a service-based economy. Health, very big, people want to, to spend their money on services, health, um, eating out, education, things like this. The actual old-style economies based on manufacturing have been in decline. 
Okay, and basically the only manual labour left now is in the construction sector, mm. which of course is booming because of the population growth. But the real, real move has been towards service-based economy. And also that's the structural change, if you like. There's a technological change <coughs> which is reducing the demand for manual labour, manual skills, and even not so much increasing the demand for knowledge-based skills. That's still increasing a little. The big one is in interactive skills people skills, if you like, mm. managing teams, working in teams, um, being able to uh, relate to customers. And far be it from me to say this, but there are some who think that perhaps women are better at those sort of skills than men are. Um, I've heard people say that. <laughs> um, but basically, <laughs> basically the nature of the job market is that it's very much moving towards an area which is which favours women. And, of course, then on the supply side, there's been the change in attitudes towards women working. There's been more investment in childcare, et cetera, which is probably not enough, but okay. But these all those factors mean that the participation of women in the workforce is increasing. And they, they seem to – women seem – because of the, the nature of the subjects they take at university as well, they seem to be more related to the labour market than a lot of the men. Mm. For instance, you know, there's this terrible thing going on at the moment, I think it's pretty terrible, of trying to get women to do STEM subjects. That's terrible. Our study shows that it's in STEM subjects that women have the worst outcomes. Right. By far. Solely women? No, no, well, men, men aren't that great but in the, compared to others, but it's really that's where you find that women are most disadvantaged of graduates is actually in STEM subjects, particularly in those. We, we tend to talk about the median student, that is, you know, half the students are better than this, half the students are worse than this. But if you actually look at the students who don't perform very well, the STEM, the people doing STEM subjects, have very very poor outcomes. So in in a, in a it's in a world where we're trying to push something, uh, you know, we we should I think we should I'm sort of don't deviate from the topic a bit, but we should start to think about whether we know best about what other people should be doing. And so pushing women into STEM subjects may not be doing them great favour. They they seem to know what they want to do. The subjects they take, they're doing quite well in. Tanelli. Mm. Yes, I just wanted to add that I think sorry. we will STEM, oh, STEM. Uh, science, technology, engineering, engineering and maths. And maths. Yeah. Apologies. Yeah, and I think that there's a problem in grouping them together because if you look at IT as in technology and the mathematics side of it, there's mm. a lot of jobs and they're highly paid, you know. But if you look at science, then that is an area where my original comment about typical jobs really plays a, a really bad role because a lot of students who go into things like biomedical science and chemistry have enjoyed science at school and they are focused on a research-based career. So what Phil said now, um, students who are academically, you know, not at the top 5-10% to get into honours, to get into a research career, um, basically then feel they've failed. The reality is that if you study something like, if you study any science discipline, the scientific method is is a very good preparation for any kind of a job role in the future. It Basically, you have a systematic approach where you collect evidence, where you make decisions based on evidence, um, you learn data skills, technology is built in, um, you're systematic, you're very compliant. There's a lot of skills there, but so science has one of the very, one of the lowest graduate outcomes 
in in uh, for under um, bachelor's degree students it's not because science students aren't sought after most of the consulting firms are out looking for those students but those students aren't there looking um for those jobs mm. Irma, is that is that uh, been what we found there at Grattan and are there courses that are doing better than others uh, okay so um so to go back to science i think um science um even though there are many employers looking for science graduates, I think what we found in data is is that they actually have probably one of the worst outcomes among different disciplines. Um, a bit better than humanities, but it's still very low. And especially if you if you consider the fact that the median ATAR um, for science students is actually ninety, so it's it's not that they are not acad- academically gifted. It's just there are. Um, few jobs that actually would take science graduates. Um, many of them actually work in sales and services, which, you know, those jobs you actually don't need a qualification, a high education qualification for. And what we found is during that period between 2006 and 2016, science graduate actually did particularly badly. So they deteriorated in terms of earnings as well as their chance of getting a professional job. Uh, it used to be about seven in in every 10 science students, actually science graduates get a, a professional job. In 2016, it reduced by it reduced to about six in every every ten students. So it's actually a substantial reduction, apart from the earnings um, deterioration as well. Um, nursing and and education, on the other hand, which are highly you know dominated by women, um, uh, did particularly well, and they had earnings growth of about ten percent over that period in real terms. So some of the the data we've looked at um, from the U.S. shows that a majority of science graduates in the U.S. go on to teaching. Um, In Australia, that trend isn't strong enough. But again, if you look at Teach for Australia, they really target science graduates because science graduates also come with maths skills as well. And there's a shortage of science and maths teachers in schools. But the average science graduate doesn't think that is plan A. They think that that's a compromise. And, and for us at Deakin, a lot of our focus is on changing students and academics' mindset on what is a typical career and what are the opportunities out there. Mm. So given this, what seems to be reasonably poor results for particularly science graduates, uh, Phil, how does this translate to what skills Australia needs over the long run? You spoke about manual skills, you know, d- declining, and um, you know, what does that what does that speak to in terms of Australia's of long run skills? Well, let me just say, if I was to uh, map what I thought the skills in demand were in twenty years' time and the jobs that were going to be in demand, I can almost assure you I'd be wrong. Um, and (laughs) unfortunately there does a lot of a lot of a lot of uh, human capital gets invested in trying to work these things out like how many TAFE places do we need where do we need them how many university places how many we should have more scientists we should have more nurses it never works if you look at every downturn in in a particular graduate low job market you can trace it back to bad decisions that have been made like IT graduates were a classic one. They, they, everybody said we needed more and more and more IT, and the result was a collapse in the jobs market. Going back to uh, what we see, if you look at historical trends, I said the trend is is away from manual skills. It's away to it's it's 
what we used to call problem solving, I suppose, and, and teamwork and, and and things like we're trying to work out solutions to questions. And I'm not sure the best way of teaching that in a university is or which degree best fits you. I personally think economics is one of the best ones because, again, we've got a lot of quantitative skills. We have a lot of, you know, basically we try to reason against people who think we're mad. And uh, and so the, those are pretty good skills to have. Um, but you've got to be good at it. That's the only trouble. And so as we, we, we have, when you actually look at the data that we've been manipulating, um, <laughs> there's a huge variation between people who do well and those who don't and it's the ones who are good at it are doing really well in fact in just about every discipline but um, I think probably it's more basic than that um, what disturbs me more than anything is the, the people we're getting to university the base they seem to be lacking those basic skills the, the data analysis being able to uh, I don't know if it's the fault of the curriculum or, the, or what but you know, the basic math skills are missing where economics, for instance, uses a hell of a lot of graphs. And I have a year 12 te maths teacher saying, well, our students couldn't do that because mm. they've chosen the lowest level. And if you can't do that, you really are in a pretty poor way. I often think that when, when I see um, Alan Kohler at the end of the news with those graphs, I said, nobody knows what he's talking about. In fact, they actually people have done studies and they say when the financial news is on at the end, only 5% of the population have any idea what's going on. Most people get off and start making a cup of tea or something, right? And that's and that's that's those are pretty basic skills. Just being able to interpret ideas, numbers, being able to write. The standard of the standard of uh, English skills in Australia is appalling. Mm. You know, that's why. I mean, okay, we <laughs> jump the gun again. The creative arts. Um, that's a terrible degree in terms of rates of return. But there are people who do really well, and what they do is they don't do arts. They go into journalism, which is ranked as creative arts, and they don't become journalists. There's a huge demand for journalism graduates, not as journalists, but they, they work in organisations like the public service, private sector, rewriting everything because they have the skills to write. But if we concentrated on that at schools, to be able to write, put an argument forward, to take a piece of it, some information and try and distill a, a prescient information from it, be able to illustrate it with numbers and graphs. That's a huge skill which people don't possess. Now, whether you need a university to teach you that, I don't know. Well, you probably do because the schools aren't doing it. Well, that's. I might actually throw to you here, Danelli. Um, what are university students doing to prepare students in terms of skills development in, and for the changing employment market? Absolutely. Look, Universities have prioritised employability for a long while. And there's also the recognition that the half-life of knowledge that you gain in, in a university is getting shorter and shorter. And it's, I think, sitting somewhere around five and a half years now, according to uh, what people are saying. So basically, there is this acceptance, reluctant or otherwise, that the content that academics are so fond of is not going to be uh, valid by the time the students graduate. So universities look at 
you absolutely need some content. You need to study the academic rigor that develops things like critical thinking, complex problem solving, comes from your studying something in depth, where you start with some foundational work and then you build on those first principles. You inquire, you get curious, you you know find out more. That's how your brain learns to learn new things, but also to to be curious and to um, to think critically and to problem solve. So our advice is to students, study what you're passionate about. So if you really enjoyed chemistry, study chemistry at university, dive into it and develop these skills that are transferable into other settings. But don't get hung up about what you're going to become. And certainly don't try to predict what jobs are going to be out there. Because these days, kids are picking subjects at year 10 because they're locking into getting the best data and you know these sorts of things. So universities, apart from um, teaching the discipline-specific content, uh, content, also focus on generic skills, transferable skills. So the Australian Qualification Frameworks requires that uni a university degree teaches things like communication, collaboration, digital literacy. Um, so all degrees have to incorporate those in. Now, at Deakin, for example, we did about six years ago a full curriculum um, refresh where every degree had to evidence that they are assessing the the generic skills, the transferable skills that we call Deakin graduate learning outcomes. But they're basically communication, collaboration, digital literacy, critical thinking, problem solving, self-management, things that you need for life as well as work. And it's not about just communication, you can get up and talk, it's contextualized to your discipline. So my discipline area, analytics, communication is about being able to explain complex things to lay people, to be able to relate data, to be able to tell stories based on data that you see. So in developing those skills, you are suddenly opening up opportunities for students to be able to go into job roles where they have to do things that machines can't do. Essentially, a university education has to develop the skills that make us human and separate us from machines. Because if it can be automated, it will be eventually, because mm -hmm. it's cheaper you know, moving forward. Apart from the, the skills, so you have your discipline skills, you have your generic or transferable skills, then universities are focusing on work readiness. So we encourage students to do an internship or uh, work integrated learning, that's more broad, broadly known, as part of a degree. Because to get a job, you, your first job, you still need experience these days. So by doing an internship, you are able to get some work experience. You won't get paid, but you do it as part of your degree. We also encourage students to have a job, as in a casual job, because they develop work readiness, they are able to hold down a job, they are able to be accountable, be responsible, get along with other people. We also encourage students to do some volunteering, be civic-minded, contribute to society. So basically develop the broader person going through. Um, so all universities are doing this and have been for a very long time. Again, I go back to this mindset that despite all of that, a majority of students are focused on their discipline skills and what they studies, studied and think that career is linear. And, and I think that's really where the problem is. So that's what we can learn from university. And um, what I'd like to do now is go back to some of the issues around graduate premiums. Phil, the average graduate 
by the sounds of it, is still getting benefit from going to university. Um, they're getting these skills that perhaps they're not learning in schools. Um, uh, but are there some people who don't financially benefit from university? And do we know why they don't? Well, there are, um, there are obviously some degrees that are marginally uh, used, even for the median student. But we looked at the uh, the bottom 20 per- 20, 20% of graduates and... Um, they're Say in, bottom twenty percent. These are the ones. These are the ones who you take. You can take. You can take the returns to education. You take the median student, and then you then you can rank them. That's the that's the one that divides the sample in half, and then you take twenty percent, which is the bottom twenty percent in terms of earnings outcomes, and um, they do very badly indeed. In fact, there's only there's only medicine and dentistry where it's worthwhile doing a degree if you're in the bottom twenty twenty five percent. And don't forget, these are the twenty five percent who actually make it through university. We're not talking about the people who don't who have to drop out or fail. There's twenty five percent of those get through. It's not worthwhile doing. And the what we point we looked through all the factors that could possibly explain this. And the biggest one is now is the biggest thing you can notice about them is they're not doing jobs that are fit for their qualification. Well, by which we mean the definition of a professional and a managerial, according to the ABS, is that you've got to have a degree. Less than 30% are doing those those jobs. Most are in, are in clerical or sales. Um, so... Basically, what we do is we've got a whole set of people who've got a university education for which they don't need it. Now, there are, there are two explanations. One is that the people haven't acquired the skills that are necessary to do a professional job. Therefore, they're going into jobs which they might be perfectly <coughs> suited for. Well, they are because they're employed. They're suited for those jobs and they didn't really need the university qualification. That's one Another one is the job the lad the jobs ladder's changed. So now you need a degree even to become a clerk. I see it at our university. You can't get into the university without a, a, a degree, basically, and they're not what I would call degree level jobs. And, you know, it could be rude. Is that to partly it. because <laughs> of what you what we're seeing, where we're not getting the skills from from high school necessarily, and so we need those skills from the degree? Is that oh. is that where that mindset is coming from? There's do you one. Think? There's, again, there's the, the possibility is that the the the, qual- the skills you require need you need a university education now to do what was a pre uh, below university job, or it could be that thing about credentialism. That as the as the number of people in the jobs queue gets bigger and bigger, okay, obviously the most highly highly qualified ones tend to get the jobs first, and it's the same with youth. You see it particularly with youth unemployment. Okay, the ones who are likely to get a job get them first, and what you're left with is a pool of people who are who are very un- unqualified indeed, have no labour market experience. That so maybe the lab- there may be an employers are just it's just credentialism. Employers are just employing graduates because they can. They don't really need a degree for the job they're doing. Or or it could be the jobs have changed and now you need a degree to even be, I'm not, not to be insulting, not even be, but to be a clerk and, or, or do clerical work, um, then you you need a degree to do that. That's, that's a possibility. And I don't think anybody's really worked that out yet. 
Janelle? Okay. I definitely agree with the, I think it's the latter. I don't know whether there are jobs for clerks anymore, Phil. I think that, well, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I look at the university, you know, when I started university 20 years ago, a course advisor or a degree advisor's role was didn't require a degree because everything was in paper. You get your course map there, everything's written out. And degrees were very fixed in their ways. Now, we absolutely need someone to have a degree because the students already got a lot of that information online, but what they want is a conversation about how do I combine a minor with what I am doing. So you need someone who's able to problem solve, someone who's able to look at the course requirements for the person to complete, make sure that that matches what this student wants to do. Another student will come and say, I want to do a study abroad, I want to go to Italy. And I can do these subjects and I'll get credit for that. So, I mean, I'm sure you can program a computer to do all of these different variations, but the reality is that that person who's giving the course advice now needs to do a lot of problem solving and a lot of it is unique. Not all students will come to them, but th those who do have a, a problem that needs to be solved that's a bit more complex. They also need to have a high level of digital literacy because when they see a student, that gets recorded. There's case management of students, all the compliance we have around student management, whether the student was given advice. So I really think that jobs have changed. And I think that the jobs that are there do require a lot of um, the broader skills that you get from a university education. That's not to say everyone benefits. I'm not sort of pushing that you know, altogether. I'm sure there are people going to university who would do better to get a, a vocational qualification instead. And I think, Itima, you've seen a lot of that yeah. out there. But for a majority, it does benefit them. And I think it also benefits them in life. Edwin, did you want to comment yeah, on that? Yeah, I, I guess I, I agree with both of you. I think it's probably a combination of the two. That is, you know, we are, you know, graduates now. There's so many graduates that's available for, for these kind of job and employers just, just choosing whoever the most, you know, the most qualified, the best within the system. But, I mean, we, we've seen this going on for a very long time. So things like nursing, you know, things like teaching, a teacher didn't use to need a, a bachelor degree, and now you know you need a a bachelor degree with a a, a deep um, a deep ed essentially, and 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 to do that job. Um, and while yes, the nature of the job may have changed, and you know we we did see we have seen changes in those jobs. I, th I think the nature, the main part of the job itself is still very much about teaching and helping students. Um, but I think now we, with this whole credentialism, you know, we can actually move and, and creating essentially more hoops that for people to, 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 to jump through. That said, there's also an evidence on the other side that is like things like nursing. You know, the report that came out last week, I think Alpha Beta was talking about how, um, you know, to be a nurse, you actually now use more technology than you used to. And, you know, the jobs, actually the nature of a job self is actually moving forward in that direction. So having a degree does help. So just going back to whether everybody is benefiting and, and who isn't benefiting, Phil. I just want to, to to check in with you. Has the proportion of those who don't benefit grown over the years, over recent years, or do you think it's on the decline based on this discussion? Well, we don't know because um, by definition, when we, take the, when we take the average student, we take the medium, which is always so it's half, half more better than that and half worse. I and mean, obviously the 20% are the worst 20%. Now, what we could... Um, so you, we have we have traced them over time, 
and the twenty percent, the bottom twenty percent, seem to be doing worse than the bottom twenty percent were, say, ten years ago. So the gap is 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 larger. Do you think between those that are benefiting and those that aren't? Yes. Yes. Yeah. We do also see some outstanding achievement um, in some universities. Earlier this week, Deakin won an award, I believe, um, for from the graduate recruitment industry for the most popular careers service. Um, could you talk a bit about what Deakin's achieved, Danelli, and, and how they did that? Sure. So the award is the Graduate Recruitment Industry Award, and they sort of have an annual conference where um, graduate recruiters across Australia vote on the, uni- the interactions they've had with universities, what's the most, um, the best career service in, in their mind. And we've won this sort of two years in a row, um, which you know is, is fantastic to have that endorsement. What we've done differently is that we've listened to employers. So we um, set up a, a team, a recruitment services team, and rather than have people who have a careers background, we brought in people from the recruitment industry. So it's headed by someone who was in a recruitment agency, um, environment where they worked with the employer and the candidate, so they were the middle person. But we also have people who have recruited for government, for consulting firms, for banks. Um, so what we are trying to do is to understand the graduate recruitment market and work with what the employers want from graduates and feed that back into the university. So we have an advisory board with representation from all of the industry sectors. um, And every year when the recruitment season finishes, we get feedback from them on, you know, how did they recruit? What are the skills they're looking for? What are the trends? We're not trying to forecast into the future. We're just trying to get a pulse of what's out there. Um, And we are trying to then prepare our students for that world. So we tell our students, whether they believe it or not, um, you know, don't get defined by what you study. So we, one of our catchphrases is, what you study doesn't define or limit what you become. We created a framework of three types of jobs, a sort of a typology, um, where we started off by saying type A is the typical job, but we ended up flipping it because people thought A was better than B was better than C. So type A, we say, are open rules, like It's the open golf. Anyone can go. Um, And therefore, um, positions where you absolutely need a degree because they they require digital literacy, they require complex problem solving and so on, but it's not what you studied. So I'll give an example. The the person who um, coordinates operations for, for my team is a creative arts graduate. She did dance. That was her major. She's now uh, has the project coordinator, event coordinator type role. She's very organized, a fantastic communicator. She deals with uh, par- external partners, with university, with students. She has all the generic skills that we need for the role. She would have never thought of getting that role, but she'd never thought of being a dancer, so she looked around and this is where she's ended up. So type B roles are roles where you're not doing the typical role, but either the sector you work for or the nature of the job is related to what you studied. So an example is a sales um, rep for a pharmaceutical company a biomedical science student going there. So the biomedical science where they study chemistry in particular is needed because they're selling or they're uh, promoting drugs. They need to be able to read a TGA report and understand what it says. They need to have statistics to be able to understand what are the chance, you know, probabilities of having, you know, particular um, outcomes. 
So the science is needed, but they are not working as a scientist. They're actually selling. So their communication skills, and in particular, the ability to communicate technical information in non-technical ways is highly sought after. Then type C is your typical role. So we push that to type C to say, don't think of that first. And we tell students very clearly, in your study area, here are the stats. You know, we can tell you that only 10% of you will go on to type C roles. That doesn't mean you failed. So we bring employers in. We, we looked at, you know, graduate profiles. We um, go through LinkedIn and social media sites like that to identify graduates who've done environmental science and gone on to work as a consultant or they are doing policy work, which is would be a type B role. And we keep pushing these out to students. So um, I think the award we got was recognition from employers that we're listening to them mm. more than anything else. Mm, fascinating. There's been a lot of discussion in the media um, around the deteriorating admission practices. And Phil, you spoke yourself before about how university students are underprepared, uh, sorry, school students are perhaps underprepared for university degrees. Um, uh, so a question for all of you, do you think Australia has too many university students? No, I don't. <laughs> Look, I, I, I think you need to be educated to live in the world we live in. Right. People have to do their own tax returns. People have to do their own banking online. And I think that having a more educated population is a good thing. But if people are expecting a different thing out of their degree, different outcome from their degree, that is where I see the problem. I grew up in a developing country. I grew up in Sri Lanka where education changes not only the person who gets the education, but their entire families and generations to come. It's about not just about how much they earn, it's about their health, it's about their aspirations, it's about their social standing. Now, I know we live in Australia and these things aren't that critical, but really the world that we are moving into, um, which is a globalized world where people are, you know, can move across, they can work, you know, they can live in South America and have a job in Australia. I think to prepare for a world like that, you need to be able to have a, a different level of education. You need a more sophisticated education than what school prepares you for. Phil? We haven't mentioned uh, TAFE, I don't think. No. But, um, mm. I mean, I'm sure a lot of these skills are ideally um, taught in TAFE colleges rather than university. Um, and I think because we've encouraged so many people to get into we've under undervalued the, the fantastic uh, uh, skills you can get from TAFE. And I think our analysis shows that... Uh, for a lot of the jobs, you don't need a university education. You could, if you'd be better off going to TAFE. And I don't think, probably at the age of seventeen or eighteen, where it is, the students are fully equipped to know. Which I think they've got, they've got a mindset which says they're taught by politicians, the universities, their parents that they should go to university. If you don't go to university, you fail somehow. Well, that's not the case. You can get a really good education from TAFE and you get all the skills that uh, you're talking about there. Um, if I get in a hobby horse here, um, <laughs> it seems to me it's a very strange system called a demand-based system where you don't have a price. What they, they said, anybody can go to university, you can borrow the whole of the money from the government, the government will pay half and they will lend you the rest and you never have to pay it back unless you reach a certain threshold. 
imagine if we did that with anything else you could have as much as you wanted and borrow the money off the government and not necessarily pay it back and don't forget about um, at least 25% of people never pay their hex back never in the creative arts no female graduate ever pays their hex back because they don't earn enough just think what this is costing the taxpayer okay we, we think education is wonderful yes we all know education provides huge benefits but at what cost there has to be some change to this system whereby we put valuable public resources into things where they're going to get the most back and it's not necessarily going to university for three years Irma? yes <laughs> I very much agree with Phil in terms of the help costs um, and, and I would also add that um, the government is doing something about it so by reducing the threshold um, to, to you know uh, above which you actually students have to repay so now it used to be about 52 now it's 45 so actually many students are now actually have to pay earlier I think I think the another you know bad thing about this whole issue is is the fact that the government is not actually fully costing the debt um, as of in in their budget so now there's about um, 20 nearly 30 billion dollars worth of debt that is not expected to be repaid and that is not costed in in their balance sheet so it, it's in their balance sheet but it's not costed so you have 30 billion dollars worth of costs that will flow through for future generations to pay um, and, and I don't think that's 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 a very good idea. And I know that the UK government is actually looking into changing the accounting um, framework on that, which I think it's it, it's great. Um, in terms of the uh, whether we have too many students, um, I, I, I guess what I'd say is that we certainly do have you know more or less prepared students at university now we have many more low ATAR students going to university, and we know from our research that they're much more likely to drop out. That said, um, just because they drop out doesn't mean they don't actually benefit from their education. We know from our research as well that you know many many of students who drop out actually do benefit in in one way or another, and many on things like you know employment related benefits. Uh, so I think that the focus should be on whether we can actually find options that are that that would provide better outcomes for these students. So that you know, is it TAFE or is it you know other vocational education? So that we can actually um, provide the right advice to the right students, rather than just currently you know essentially encouraging them to go to university, which may not necessarily be the right option for them. That very nicely transitions me to my final question to you all, um, and I will throw open to you, to our audience very shortly. Um, so, you know, we've talked about declining graduate outcomes, but we've talked about the importance of skills development and how the degrees are, are providing that. So, on balance, is it? Let's go back to our title title question of the night for this talk. Is it worth going to university? Absolutely. <laughs> Short and sweet. I like it, Denali. <laughs> for most people, yes. For most people. Edema? Yeah, so I'd say for most people as well, um, I think uh, university degrees still provides a good kind of um, insurance against not, not getting a job at the least, um, on average higher earnings. Uh, that said, if you're keen on trades, I, I think you should go for it. I think many trade skills, many trade courses actually are doing, you know, 
their graduates are doing really well. We know that, you know, trade skills are in high demand for a very long time and still, you know, it's very likely for at least, at least in the medium term. So based on the various jobs um, uh, forecast. So in that sense, I think if you're keen on trades, things like plumbing, things like electrical engineering, go for it. Um, but um, but that's not, not certainly not across the board. So not so much management and commerce. So. Great, thank you very much. So I will throw open to the uh, to the audience now. Oh, I've got a few few hands up. I'm going to run around with a mic. <laughs> I'm all things to all people tonight, so I'll just start at the back here. Hi, thank you very much. Um, no, thank you for thank you panelists for a really insightful session. Um, I I have um, a, a major question and a, a a second sort of more curious question. Um, very quickly, Phil, uh, you you mentioned very categorically that no female creative arts students have ever repaid their hex back, and I was just wondering if that was a comment that actually said more male actually you know got was able to do that and and get that back. And I'll I'll just really quickly. Um, ask my main question, which is um, to the representative from the Deakin University, you talked about internship um, being something that is very valuable and, and you know, highly encouraged uh, and, and absolutely agree. But you also mentioned um, sort of as an offside comment that oh, most of them are unpaid and that's fine. And I wonder about the ethics of unpaid internship and whether that creates the kind of incoming inequalities that we see more and more where, you know, only really the kids who ha come from wealthy families can afford to work for free um, and often the exploitation of unpaid labour is a huge issue for university students. So I'll, I'll be curious on your reflection on, on that. Phil, we might start with uh, the creative arts question. Perhaps I should have qualified that a little after. <laughs> when I take <clears throat> creative arts graduates, the median creative arts graduates, right, people on median earnings, uh, female graduates don't pay hex. Males do, but they don't start paying until on average they're 35 years old. So, if you, we, you, you know, for me, we're discounting, aren't you? If you discount that back to age 18, it essentially means very little. Um, if you take the bottom 25% of uh, graduates, they never pay X. So, so by, <clears throat> I was, I'd be very careful here because I've talked to a creative arts audience as well and they nearly got stoned um, <laughs> in, the, no, sorry, in the biblical sense. Um, the, uh, <laughs> it's the classic consumption good, okay? If you want to do a degree that you really like and you're never going to, it's not going to cost you a penny, do creative arts. We're going back to our, the, you know, the times when universities, that's what they used to do. Denali, I will throw to you on the internship question. Yes. Look, absolutely. Very, very good points. There's a huge potential for students to take an get taken advantage of. So the Fair Work regulations actually extend to um, internships and, and work integrated learning. Um, and basically the guidelines are that if it is for um, part of their study, so it's a requirement for the degree and they're enrolled in a degree um, then or uh, any other qualification, then a play unplayed placement is legal. So um, most universities set, use these guidelines and then set uh, what that means. So at Deakin, for example, we will allow up to 150 hours of unpaid 
uh, work, providing that it is for credit, so they will then get one unit of study credited to their degree. If it's more than 150 hours, then the employer has to pay. We also check that the employer is giving work that is um, relevant to the, what, what the student is studying. So it's professional level work as well. A lot of employers will tell you that when they have an employer, when they have an intern, that the intern is not being productive for a long while. So they invest a lot of time in actually getting the intern into the workplace and getting them uh, trained up, if you like. So the, the employers that pay will typically say they want six month placements because that is when they get a return on their investment. Just to expand on that question, um, uh, do you get feedback because you said earlier that you like graduates to, or you suggest graduates also have a part-time job. How difficult is it for them to be completing a degree, have a part-time job and be doing an unpaid internship? That is the typical student now. Vast majority of students, and I'm sure you have data here, certainly at Deakin, we have a lot of students who come from uh, regional rural locations. They move from home, and I think there was an article today in the Australian um, that when they move, it's, it's a big cost. Um, so a lot of students work, even the students who are living at home with their parents, they have an expensive lifestyle. They have their mobile, they have their car, they go out, and mom and dad, are not going to give them uh, pocket money to do that. So most students balance uh, a part-time job and study. Um, these days, studying is more flexible. Not a lot of students sort of go in for very long hours. Uh, content is available online. They go in for workshops and seminars, uh, but that is the norm. And if you talk to large employers, they say that they like that. They don't want a student to stay at home and get a 99% average and do nothing else. They actually like the student who manages their time, takes responsibility, uh, balances study and uh, work, but for a, for a lot of students, it's not a choice. They have to work casual. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to ask something about that. So I think it's certainly true that if you actually don't get support from your parents, you know, certainly, you know, if you look at youth lounge or our study and those kind of things, you do actually have to work. You know, it's certainly not enough. I think on average, you actually need to work about two days a week to just get to poverty line. So, and that's you know not assuming that you actually have to rent in Melbourne or Sydney. So, you know, I think in a sense we're kind of forced. Many students are actually forced into that that um, situation. Um, in a way, it's you know as long as it's not kind of too far that is you actually have to overwork in order to survive. Then you know for many employers, we know that they actually prefer you know their 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 applicants who actually have demonstrated some sort of professional skills, haven't been in the in the workforce already. What I was also going to respond to what Phil was talking about the creative arts thing, which is I I, I agree that is it is consumption good. We we know that if you actually look at who you know what kind of students actually do creative arts is actually very high SES students. You hardly see any low SES students doing creative arts. And similarly for for humanities, not to that extreme, but creative arts is very dominated by high SES students. So it is a consumption good. Hmm. Get a question. Uh, Marius Barnsley, a recent graduate of the University of Wollongong, major, uh, Bachelor of Commerce, majored in accounting and minored in mathematics. Um, I have a bit of a, a different life story that I will keep extremely brief. Very, very brief. <laughs> very brief. <Okay. laughs> then a question. <laughs> yeah. Went, um, went, went out to work for several years, including that of overseas, went to TAFE before university, have just recently finished my degree, including some time on exchange, where I, which I, including a bit of time in the military. 
I, um, you've talked about marketable skill sets like your data analytics, your teamwork, your ability to write and express a coherent argument. I feel my studies and my outsides stuff have, and, and I did part-time work throughout university, have all contributed that. I am just having no luck getting work. Um, it's now I'm at the five-month mark. I go, I, I hammer meetups. I, uh, I go to any number of different events. I have a bag overflowing of business cards of different people I meet. I'm in the city every day, nearly. And I feel that that's a, I'm, I'm on employment support with by the government and also on um, a bit of a medical thing because I'm I'm finding this is a very difficult situation. I'm suffering depression and like symptoms. So I'm then on medical support from the government there. And I'm just wondering, well, one, I'm probably not only, the, the only person in that situation. So what are some ideas that I can have to be getting myself into full-time employment? And what can we do to reduce the sort of post-university drain that, I know I'm creating because I just can't seem to get get my foot in the door. Thank you. Denali, I'll, I'll throw to you on that. That's, That's okay. okay. Look, um, you're not the only one, absolutely. And I have to say that um, students who struggle to find work, it is really stressful. And then after a while, you become very negative and then that the whole thing sort of is all-consuming. So completely empathise with you. Um, finding a full-time ongoing job is a challenge. We really recommend to students to get any contract, part-time, casual work and get a foot in. Often when you get into the workplace and start working, so you might, um, you know, start one day a week or you're just on a short-term project. Even if you, even if that doesn't lead to another job there, often that on your resume then gets you the next contract. A lot of um, graduates have to work short-term contracts before they get a full-term, full-time job. So my, my, my tip will be, look, you have skills that are sought after. There's no question about it. Um, it's about getting getting that first step. The other is to also look further out of the cities. So certainly in Victoria, the, the regional rural employers are screaming for graduate accounting skills, finance, engineering, IT. Um, so, you know, again, if you don't want to think of it as a long-term thing to, you know, do that in the first instance and then, you know, look at moving through. Phil, based on your research, is that is that something that's a, a big issue for a lot of graduates? Well, the, um, the Graduate Destination Survey, which um, uh, surveys people three months after graduate, then, then, the, then a period after and after, shows that the length of time now that graduates uh, are taking to get their first job, proper job, if you like, um, has increased quite dramatically. Um, for, for there are, there are um, probably about half of uh, people graduating now who are uh, waiting two years to, to get into that position. And most of them are doing something now. They're doing part-time work or further study, which is, of course, another thing which we haven't talked about tonight is the growth of master's students. That um, might be a whole, <laughs> whole other event for some other evening. But, um, <laughs> yeah. And so, so um, this, the situation is not that unusual. Uh, not that it's very nice, but the solution does seem to be not a solution, but the one way of alleviating is to actually take some work, okay, which is and hopefully relevant to your skill sets, um, and um, and you know, and, and firstly, the best 
the best way of getting another job is to get a reference from the current one. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult dilemma. You've got to get the first one before you can get the second one. Uh, it's almost as if your university skills count for nothing after your first job. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I you know, very much sympathise with your, you know, situation. So what I would say is that, you know, like Phil said, it's actually has been deteriorating over time, essentially since 2008. So the un and underemployment rate among new graduates actually doubled during that period between 2008 and 2014. But we are seeing kind of improvements in, you know, in, in the graduate outcomes. And we also saw from, you know, various um, RBA papers that you know the, the labor market slack essentially you know people looking for jobs actually reducing so you know the, the labor market is actually absorbing more and more people um from them from you know looking for a job so you know i think you are looking for and kind of a you know better time ahead so what a question here then down the front and then one here um, do you think the degree framework as it currently exists restricts students from being able to choose the combination of courses that will best prepare them to succeed? I know, for example, that I was restricted in taking a history course specifically that focused on history from uh, the beginning of time um, to the Renaissance when I knew that that was not at all relevant to my working career. And are there other degree structures overseas that might better promote um, outcomes. Danelli, do you want to take that one? Look, I think each, there's no such thing as a standard degree structure. Um, so there are, you know, typically in, an, in a bachelor's degree, you will have a set of compulsory or core units that you have to study and then some electives. More often than not, some of the core units are things you look at and think, I wish I didn't have to do this. And, you know, the average business graduate probably didn't want to do economics or stats, certainly, I've found. Um, so there's no such thing as a typical structure. I think that when um, students pick a university uh, or pick, a, pick a, their, their course, they need to look at the course rather than the university because some universities will give you more flexibility in what you want to choose if you if that's what you want whereas some students actually it's the paradox of choice they don't want to have to make decisions and they want to be told this is what you need to do you know so in areas like business most australian universities have a standard first year you have to do your accounting finance economics uh, marketing management and analytics or, or stats um, and then you can choose where you go from if you do an arts degree in most universities nothing's prescribed you know you might have a handful of units that you have to do so it's there's no such thing as a standard structure. Uh, you can do double degrees. You can certainly do double majors, cross-faculty. That's more and more common now. And have you seen different structures overseas? Um, look, the, the US system's fairly fixed because of because most people go on from an undergraduate into a postgraduate to become something, if you like. Um, so their structures tend to be very broad and you know they'll sort of prescribe that you have to do a bit of breadth and depth but other than that you have more opportunity. Um, in the UK it's more like here, um, you know it, it depends on the university. Has the structure marginally changed over the course of the last 20-30 years of, of, of Australian degrees? In some areas. So you know we are heading towards designer degrees where uh, particularly at postgraduate level you will be able to pick what you want and put that together. 
But at undergraduate level, I don't think um, the average school leaver is able to make that decision apart from getting that foundation and then saying, I enjoy this, I'll study more of that. Mm. Question down the front. Uh, yeah, in the same way that you've um, suggested that you can't predict what the jobs might be or the job titles might be in 20 years, has the nature of work changed? Not only in that it no longer being the industrial age, but the way in which we work and engage with work. And I'm hitting here specifically to the idea of a gig economy, where we have th marketplaces like freelancer.com and Upworks. Are you speaking with graduates about these options as a way of starting to get in? Because anyone can go on there and it's actually a, a way of starting to actually get work work and and get some experience so is that part of the conversation that's occurring at university um, about accessing those platforms and also considering that the nature of work's changing it may not be about a full-time job ever Danelle. Oh, absolutely. Look, there's no such thing as a full-time job. There's also the concept of a portfolio career where you run multiple jobs at the same time because you can't get a full-time job. Um, look, you know, I didn't plant this question, I have to say, because um, the, the answer to this is we have something called the freelancing hub at Deakin. And what we are trying to get students to understand is that the only model is not to be an employee that you can create work, but you can also choose to do short-term you know, work and, and manage your own work. Most universities also have startup accelerators and, um, you know, so to encourage someone who's got a very, um, you know, clever idea to develop that concept, but then they need somebody to put money in. How do you get that money and all of that? So absolutely. And look, I don't think it's just at Deakin. You know, I think it's just very much uh, the world of work has changed um, and a lot of traditional academics still probably think that there are full-time jobs in their, their study area, but I think students are more aware of it. There's a lot of interest in entrepreneurship. Um, I sort of agree that marginally that might have an effect. Um, I think all the, all the, if you actually look at the jobs market, the, um, the shows that, we, there was a big thing, we, we had this huge Casualization, they called it, okay, Moot, and that occurred. And everybody said, we're all going to be working casual. We're not going to have full-time jobs. We're not going to have um, – and then the, I even hear some idiots say the average person is going to have 40 jobs in their lifetime. And things. And I think that the, someone today was brought it down to 17. But um, it's just not true. If you just look at the statistics, the degree of casualization stopped – about 10 or 15 years ago it's it's hovered at about 30 percent most people are employees working full-time jobs but there's also quite a few part-time but the patent it, it there was a revolution in the pattern of employment but it doesn't seem to have changed much at all recently you know and the number of the number of co uh, contractors self-employed that hasn't that's been going down if anything so so when It'd be great if we did have a nation of entrepreneurs, but somebody's got to do the work. <laughs> and uh, that's what most people do. Next question. Yeah, I would like to add a um, slightly different dimension to our discussion. So a lot of the debate so far has been focused on the declining graduate premium, taxpayers' money spent on HEC subsidies and so on. And I have to say this discussion surprises me to a certain degree because for me the value of higher education is much broader than that. And I should probably add that I'm German and 
higher education in Germany is completely free. So there's, you know, as such an unlimited demand driven system, if you want to classify it as such. And as long as you meet the entrance requirements, anyone can go to university. And that is based on the strong underlying assumption that human capital is our most valuable resource and the government is willing to support or invest in it as much as possible. So my question to the panel is, what, what is the approach to that? Do you agree? Do you disagree? I think I did already agree. Absolutely my viewpoint. Yeah, I think that it's a good thing um, to have an educated population, particularly in a country where everyone's forced to vote. I think it's a good thing to have people who actually know what they're doing. Irma? Yeah, so I mean, I, I certainly agree that you know having more human capital uh, in the economy is a good thing. But I, I, but but I don't think higher education is the only way of accumulating human capital. I think there's trades, and I know that in Germany, trades is actually is is quite a good, um, you know, provide good outcomes, not just in higher education. Um, in this country, you know, since the demand driven started, we actually have you know growth and participation, but decline in, in vocational education. And we know that there are many, many employers looking for vocational education holders and they're just not getting enough people to fill those jobs. And we need a balance between, you know, both higher education and vocational education, not just simply, you know, more towards higher education. Phil? Well, I, I said earlier about you can't have a demand-driven system without a price. And, of course, you've got a price. You have to meet a certain score to get in. That's the price. So if you haven't got that score, you're out of the system. You don't take all those advantages. So because, and mostly the people who get those high scores, are the people from high socioeconomic backgrounds. That's the difference. In Australia, we have a we have a system whereby you don't have to get a score to get in. Okay, but you have to repay the loan. And in any whatever happens, there's there's, there's there are. The nation's resources are going into things and you have to decide whether that's the best value. Not that we don't have education or no education, but what level are we going to go to when we say the last dollar on education is really not worthwhile. We really should be putting it into hospitals or something else or educating better people, more, more teachers at schools, more vocational education training. You have to make those decisions. So there has to be some there has to be a mechanism for making that decision. To say it's free for everybody is not true. The Australian system when it was free was incredibly restrictive. Very restrictive indeed. Because you had to get you had to have parents who were well off, well educated, and they had to go to good schools. And they had to not only that, they had to live in a decent neighbourhood. <clears throat> well at least we've opened that up. Next question. Uh, thank you very much, panel. There was a statement in uh, one of the recent papers from one of the large corporations that stated that uh, big corporations in Australia shouldn't be involved in innovation. It should just be done by the small uh, organisations who are more flexible. And uh, how does that sit with the sort of push for uh, STEM education, uh, more STEM students? Is there really the growth in Australia for those. There may be in some areas of the STEM, but are we overemphasising that subject area? Bill? Um, well, there's always been this confusion about, obviously, Australia's incredibly highly developed economy. And we do it through not having many scientists. 
America is a very highly developed economy, a lot of scientists. We're gra- Australia's great users of technology. We're not very good at the actual invention of it, if you like. We buy it from America. There's nothing wrong with that. We don't necessarily have to produce our own scientists to be able to use technology. We don't have to have our own car workers to drive a car. There's, there's no reason whatsoever why the two should be linked in any way. They're just, it's just a fact there, are, there aren't the proper, there aren't the science jobs. In, there are science jobs in the United States. If you're a science graduate, you best go to America if you really want a good career in science, unless you can get yourself a job in a university as a, as a lecturer. We've got time for just one final question. No pressure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <a> good one. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so um, I think a little bit like you, I was a little surprised at the economic slant on this discussion. Uh, for context, I do work in student equity in the STEM field. Um, so we spoke a lot about university-ready students, um, internships, like you mentioned um for free, all the things that students need to do now to basically get a job. And for some of my students, they're supporting families and young children and traveling two, three hours to university. So what is the responsibility of the university to enable equitable, not equal, access into university, support for the students once they're there, and then those graduate outcomes? Denali? Yeah. Um, look, there are a lot of access and um, inclusion uh, programs. The the Higher Education Participation Fund um, is a, you know, you, you'll know about that. So at Deakin, for example, we use money from that to give grants to students uh, who have to move to have a placement, like a nursing student. And often, you know, they are women, they might have young children already. So universities do a lot around that. And I'm, I'm definitely not of the belief that, um, that you should have a, a particular cutoff to get into university. I think that, um, you know, I've seen instances of people who come in who barely make the 50, um, but they went to a school where there was no uh, dedicated maths teacher. They, they didn't have a careers teacher. They you know, lived in a farm. They traveled for two hours to get to university. And that person finishes off with a high distinction average at the end of it with the opportunity that's given. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that people who've come in with low um, ATAR scores because of um, you know um, bonus schemes or whatever, because that ref- recognition of coming from from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, once they get in, their pass rates and fail rates are the same as everybody else. So universities have to look after those students, and I don't think that you can say, let's open the gates and everyone um, you know, should be able to then survive. I don't think that is the case. We definitely need to provide uh, more programs, and universities are doing that. You know, There's a university in Victoria, um, Victoria University, uh, that changed the model the way of the way they teach. So they, rather than have students traditionally doing multiple subjects at the same time, typically you do four, they do one at a time. And that is in recognition that the, the students who are coming into their university, the, the surrounding areas, there are very, very much low socioeconomic and, and new migrants, non-English speaking background um, students. Um, and they've found that they reduce their uh, attrition rate significantly. I can't remember the figures, but I think something like two-thirds reduction. So, you know, so there are things we have to do. Absolutely. You can't open the floodgates and then say that the top student and the student who came from a, 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 you know, a school where they didn't have that foundational preparation should survive in the same classroom. 
Mm. Irma? Yeah, so what I was going to add is that the, the federal government has actually uh, proposed a what they call a performance funding, uh, which, you know, things, it would mean that, you know, what universities receive in terms of funding will, will depend on a bunch of measures, including um, graduate outcomes or employment outcomes. Uh, Many economists think it's a good idea, but um, I, as an economist, I, I question how it is going to work given the um, the difficulties in, I guess, measuring those things. Um, apart from anything else, we know this from the experience in New Zealand that you know there's kind of gaming going on, and so you know, apart from the gaming, how do we exactly measure? outcomes and what is good outcomes because like Danelli said you can't simply pass everyone you you know there, there is a level that you need to meet and you know to what extent that everyone should get a job for example well, on that note, we are very much over time. Uh, the nature of these discussions, I think you could just keep talking all night, but I will have to draw us to a close. I would like to um, say thank you to the State Library of New South Wales for hosting us tonight. Uh, it's it's through our partnership with state libraries like um, the New South Wales Library that gives us an opportunity to bring these events to you all. A huge thank you to you, our audience, for some fabulous questions and for, and for just showing up and, and being here tonight. And finally, I would like to thank our panel. It, it really is a, a great impost on their time to to, to come up here and um, you know spend the time sharing their expertise. So a huge thank you to our panel, and, and if you did all join me in thanking them. Thank you very much. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous, and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.